this talk for me is both elements of it, Amy Winehouse and then the Judaism and addiction part of this are brand new for me. And I actually, uh, I like brand new things uh, because it gives me an opportunity to get outside of my, my normal realm of experience and to think about things that matter. And Amy Winehouse matters. So in, in exploring this, I, I started listening to some Amy Winehouse music. My kids told me many years ago, oh, you have to listen to this woman. She's amazing, but she's a train wreck. And the train wreck part of Amy kind of like, well, she's a train wreck. That, of course, is the addiction part that we want to explore today. Um, her voice blew me out of the water. I, I just couldn't believe what, what she was doing. And so this talk has given me an opportunity to maybe put uh, those two dimensions together. I want to define addiction, begin by defining addiction using a medical definition because that's the, the way we understand addiction in this culture, and then understand addiction in terms of Judaism, Talmudic Judaism. And I'll just say a word about the Talmud because that, that's its own topic and I don't want to get off on that. The Talmud usually is understood as a bunch of books that were written basically in the fifth cent, put together in the fifth century CE, but the Talmud is actually more than that and not limited to that. It's a way of thinking. The root of Talmud means learning, and it's the Jewish way to be in the world is to be a learner in a certain way. And the Talmudic way of learning is basically to take stories very seriously, and it takes stories very seriously because Judaism is based on the idea of story, just as Christianity is and just as Islam is. Those are textual traditions, and story is at the center. The Talmud has a special way of relating to story, which is, first of all, to put at the heart of story question. The point of a story or the way to gain access to a story Talmudically, Jewishly, is what's the question? What's the question? And then to interpret the story, it's an interpretive tradition, creative interpretation in light of the questions. So it's not about finding answers that are definitive, okay, now I got the, I got the, the solution or the fix. It's what's the central question here that can, illuminate my, that can illuminate my life, okay? So when we look at the relationship between addiction, and we'll understand that medically, I'll read to you a couple of lines uh, from the diagnostic manual. And the Talmud, we're gonna be talking about two complementary, very different angles of vision on what does it mean to be a human being like Amy Winehouse and at age 27 die because you have a, a drug abuse problem, an alcohol problem, you are in some fundamental way an addict and addiction is lethal. And when you think about Amy's life or anyone else's life, a question that emerges, how do you measure the preciousness of what's lost. And listening to her music the last couple of days, I have to say, one cannot measure in any way that's quantifiable the depth of this, of this loss. And that's gonna be relevant uh, to what I 
what I have to say. So let me read to you um, just a couple of lines uh, how addiction is defined medically. And in any Jewish space, there are always doctors. I know in this case, there's at least one. Uh, I won't call on any doctors, but if I, if I, if I read something and it's like, oh, no, no, that's, because uh, one of the things that I learned in this exploration, I did talk to a lot of doctors, friends who were doctors, and they said, oh, well, addiction, how do we define that medically? The DMA is always, it's always changing the, the, uh, the manual of its definitions. So it's difficult to define in scientific and medical terms. As critical as it is to define it, it's very difficult to do it. But here's some language. Addiction, a primary chronic neurobiologic disease with genetic, psychosocial, and environmental factors influencing its development and manifestations. Addiction is characterized by behaviors that include impaired control over substance use, compulsive use, continued use, despite harm and craving, despite harm and craving. And of course, at the heart of this is, the deep question is, what is the self that is self-destructed in this process? What is that self? What's the Talmudic angle on addiction? The Talmudic question is basically what I alluded to a second ago. The Talmudic question is, what is the self-understanding? How do human beings understand themselves, and how do they value themselves and others? How do I see myself, grasp my identity, and how do I value myself? And of course, how I value and understand myself is also how I see and value other people. Because the way we see people is always in some way, if not a projection on our own self-understandings, at least informed and pushed by it. So the Jewish question, the Talmudic question on addiction, is a question that is not addressed at all in the medical definition, if you noticed. Who's the person in a primary chronic neurobiological disease with genetic, et cetera, et cetera? There's no explicit sense of what a human being is. Now, there is an implicit one. There is an implicit one. And the implicit one is that human beings are to be understood for the purposes of diagnosis and at least this particular dimension of medicine, clinically, that means in physical terms, in physical terms, and strictly physical terms, are almost exclude. The only language in there that's a little bit different is psychosocial factors. What's a psychosocial factor? And if you move into that language, that's the language of social science, you also have a view that's very deterministic about what it means to be human. So just a word of a caveat, I'm not critiquing medicine for that. I'm not saying that's inappropriate for medicine. Medicine has its own goals, its own methodologies, which are to measure that which can be measurable in the physical universe. It's an empirical enterprise. I'm suggesting to you that what the Talmudic question provides 
is a complement, not an instead of medicine, but a complement that deepens and shows other dimensions to help us understand what this phenomenon is of addiction, which means who is the person? What's motivating that person? What's their self-understanding? And what's the conception of self that one would see as a healthy alternative? Okay, all that's point one. Point two is what then is the picture of a human being that's presented in the story, the Jewish story that the Talmud is commenting on? And here I've, I, uh, I've got source sheets here. If you're interested, you're adventuresome, afterwards you can take them. We won't have time for me to plug into it now, so I'm paraphrasing. The Jewish view is human beings were basically, this is a story, right? This isn't a fact, it's a story. It's a way we understand psychologically, philosophically, the purpose and meaning of what it means to be human. It's not a description of the biology of what it means to be human. Human beings are taken from the earth and the character in the story, God's a character in the story. God blows his spirit or breath so that human beings become living souls. Nefesh chaya, living soul. And so, the, the challenge of being human is how do we integrate soul with body? How do we, in some way, if we're, we're both, we're not only body, we're not only biological, we are biological. We have to claim that, we have to own our bodies. But we're more than our bodies. We are also souls. We are also souls. And I, I, in, in the source sheets, uh, there's a beautiful quote, quote by Marilyn Robinson, who many of you know is a Pulitzer Prize winning, winning uh, novelist, but she's also a philosopher. And she talks about the soul, and she talks about you don't have to be religious to believe in a soul, that humanism, secular humanism, assumes that there's a soul, and the evidence for the soul is Look at the poetry written in the last 3,000 years in every single culture. Look at the music. Look at uh, other expressions of what it means to be human. That's data for what the assumption that there is a soul. And so the question is then, how is this idea that human beings are in some way struggling with bodies and souls and trying to integrate who we are, how does the Talmud interpret that? There's another image in that story. That's, it's a metaphor that you've heard, but it, it many, means many different things. And that's that we are created in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God. And the, one, of the, one of the many interpretations of that is, oh, to be created in the image of God, the creation being bodies and souls, but now we're focusing on the soul part. In other words, the deepest dimension of our identity. That's what I mean by soul. Talmud says, beloved is a human being, for we are created in the image of God. And then it adds something, a little trick phrase. Oh, and there's actually an extra dimension of love, which is, it is made known to us that we are that we are beloved. 
And so one of the inferences, the interpretive moves that comes out of this picture of being human as having souls and being living souls who inhabit bodies is that we are beloved. Our lives are a gift. They've been handed to us. And we are beloved. And that's a, a, a Jewish faith assumption. It's, it's the story of being human is the story that we are beloved. But we may not know that. We may or may not know that. We are given the capacity. It is made known, passive tense. But the gap between the fact of life as a gift and feeling that we are loved and have unconditional worth, that's where I'm going with this. Unconditional, that, that I am beloved, I am unconditionally valuable. I have infinite worth. I am absolutely unique. And I may not know that. And so I would say the gap between the idea and potential discovery of the reality of being loved, which is discovered within ourselves, that the extent to which we either don't discover it, and many people are abused. They have no sense. It's not only that they don't feel unconditional love, they don't feel love at all and they sh they've been abused. And it's very difficult for them to discover within themselves that they actually are beloved. There are other people, and this to me is actually very common, and actually I think unfortunately defines our culture in many ways. There is in our culture is infused with what I would call conditional love. Conditional love. I am loved. But my love is conditioned upon, and the classical Jewish tradition you know, has different ways of seeing this, but modernity, it's exactly the same as modernity. Um, I am what I eat. I, my very being is my biological, my capacity to enjoy the central blessings of life. And that's exhaust who I am as a human being. That's the ceiling as high as it can go is for me to embrace the world of sense, the biological universe. I can't get beyond that. I can't. The second is that I am how I look. I am my physical appearance. Maimonides puts this in terms of, of developmental steps. Little babies, they want food. You reward children by giving them candy. And of course, arrested development means candy's more than candy. Candy becomes love, right? You become an adolescent, and you really care about your appearance. Boy, I remember you know, when I went off to college, you know, I had you know, my brother and all, what do you wear? What do you wear? Herringbone, wear this. Wear. You really care about how you look, for obvious reasons, good reasons. You want to ap appeal to you're looking for a partner and a mate. You want to look good. It's, it's all appropriate. How I appear, how I look. Then you go to a stage where I am what I make. I am what I earn. I am money. I am money. Not that any of these things are bad as part of what it means to be human, but if they end up being 
my identity hinges on exhausting that, that it, it takes up the space of my soul, it becomes a problem. And then the last one that Maimonides talks about is, and when you get a little older and sort of you, you can rest on your laurels, you've made some money, you're comfortable, I am how I am seen by others. I am how I am seen by others. Honor, status, all those kind of things. Now we're living in a society that is basically, we're, we're becoming commodities because the market in market thinking, not literally the market, market thinking, where we, we, we're, we measure ourselves by all those things. We measure ourselves by these very finite, measurable, quantifiable things. And on these sheets here, I've got some quotations from major contemporary thinkers that talk about how identity is affected by the app, by the, by the digital universe, by economics, and the president of Barnard College talks about how the hookup culture, which you're all familiar with, is the way we basically have, have transformed sexual love into sexuality, pure physical. So all those things, what's the critique of all that? The critique is not that any of those things are bad as parts of self. The critique is when it fills up this inner space of self, then one cannot feel unconditional love because one is seeing oneself in those limited terms. Um, I want to suggest that um, the gap that's felt in your inner life, if you feel unloved and you feel that abyss and that hollowness, it's got to be filled with something. And all of us, we'll fill it with something that's partial, and if we're desperate, it's possible that it's gonna be a drug or alcohol, and we can understand that. It's filling a hole. You're literally pouring or injecting something that you need because you are hungry. You're hungry for something you can't get. And if it's conditional love, not that you've been abused, but your parents love you and they're just so proud of you that you got into an Ivy League school and they think that's great. And so that the message you have is yes, as long as I produce and I'm a good student and I do this, that, and the other, my worth depends on that. And anything less than that, well, I also feel a vacuum. Uh, I, I was for many years at a, at a school, a college, uh, that had all these great successful uh, kids to get into the college was a major life achievement, uh, the, the big deal of their life, and their, the, the, the branding is of course part of what I'm talking about. We are our brands, it's obscene, we are our brands. Excuse me, I hope I don't offend anyone. We are our brands. To me, branding is for cattle, and for people you're putting in cattle cars. That's what branding is, okay? So that's the, the, the you know, negation of what I'm talking about. But that's, that's the way we're, we're raising kids now. What kindergarten did you get into? So you get into the right primary school, so you get into da-da-da-da-da-da. Then when they get, they finally have arrived, guess what? The depression rate in those schools is astronomical. When you have conversations with these kids who are successful on the outside, look on the outside, they've got it all. 
they don't understand themselves as having it all. They've got an emptiness and they don't know what to do with it. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. So I want to come full. So that's the, that's the way the Talmud understands the question. That's the diagnosis. What's the solution or the approach? And here I'm only going to take two minutes because we don't have time, but on the sheets, I basically looked at uh, the 12 steps because a lot of people told me that the 12 steps is actually can be effective and I, I don't want to get into how effective this out of the other. It seems to, you know, it's spread all over the world in all sorts of different uh, formulations. So I wanted to understand what's the, the basis and the ground of it. And then I wanted to see how that meshes uh, with a Talmudic understanding. So all I'm going to do here is, is give you one quote from a recent liturgy of the High Holidays, the Jewish High Holidays, which is Talmudic. That's Talmudic that actually conceptually is the ground of the 12 steps. However, I'll qualify it when I, after I give you the quote and say, if there were a Jewish 12 steps, it would be, there'd be a lot of overlap. It would be actually very similar in a lot of ways, but there would be a fundamental difference or two, and I'll get to that when I get it. So, What's the last, the last quote I want to give you? So uh, some, maybe some of you are at, at, at all the services, Reform, Orthodox, they all, they all have a line that's repeated over and over again on, on Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur a couple of days ago. And in English it goes, repentance, prayer, and uh, righteous deeds avert the evil degree. And, and that's shouted out. Teshuva, to feel you shout it out because you're pleading to God, please, I don't want shit to happen to me this year. Uh, and you're pleading it out. And these are the three ways that will avert. Now, in Hebrew, that's a mistranslation in all the Sidorim, all the, all the prayer books. It doesn't say anything about anything that actually averts or cancels out degrees, evil degrees on high. It's nothing like that. It says, that there are three actions, repentance, prayer, and righteous actions, that enable one to pass through, i.e. deal with, encounter, struggle with that which is inevitable in life, which is bad and negative. That's what it's about. And the three categories that enable, that empower, I don't want to use enable here because it's, enablers have, it's a negative connotation in this context, empower one to pass through and confront that which is evil and victimizes us, weakens us. Well, all three of these, and this is, this is where Judaism and Christian 12-step are a little bit different, all three of those are based on a fundamental Jewish notion of choice. It's a pillar of Torah that human beings have free choice. We have the capacity and the ability, and this comes out of that same creation story. We have the capacity to choose. Choose life or choose death. Choose blessing, choose curse. We've got that capacity. We can lose it, but we have that capacity. So 
What is repentance? Well, in Hebrew, it's teshuva, which is, doesn't have the same connotations. And I realize, especially quickly, without being able to qualify, using uh, religious language can, can be confusing or put offish. But in Hebrew, it means turning and returning, turning away from that which is destructive, turning toward your true self, and the location for the turning is in, inwardly, in your heart, and ultimately to the ground of who you are, which is understood Jewishly as God, whatever the hell that means, which we won't talk about here. But there is a ground, the source of love. So the first step is introspection. Teshuva is about turning inward in order to discover who you are and return. The next one, tefillah, is self-judgment, self-evaluation. That's what prayer in Hebrew means. It's standing, not begging, not bowing. Uh, the prayer in Judaism, hatefillah, is you stand before God as a full human being with full dignity. You evaluate yourself and you enter into dialogue. So you're moving outside of your inner life and you're connecting with something outside and you're communicating. You're not thinking, you're communicating. Communication. And the third, tzedakah, which usually is mistranslated charity, actually means actions of just and generous actions is the best. Just and generous actions. And of course, what's, what's implied there is that it's not enough to, to talk and connect. You need to do and connect. And you need to connect generously with others. Those three Talmudic concepts are really the conceptual foundations for what then works out programmatically as the 12-step program. 12-step program basically suggests that you relinquish your total self and surrender to God, like a higher power. In Judaism, the difference is that you, in partnership with God, you don't surrender yourself, you discover dimensions in yourself and in partnership with God, you embrace life as a gift and you discover who you are. Thank you.